Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually, instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And we'll also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Anin and Buju, welcome to Club Book with David Troyer. My name is Melissa Pond-Benish. I'm one of the adult services librarians with Dakota County Library's Wentworth Library. Dakota County Library is co-hosting tonight's event. Before I introduce David properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, and is made possible through the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the Li St. Paul Public Library. Club Book has been part of the Twin Cities literary landscape in some form for a decade now, but they've never brought you a season quite like this. Thanks for making the pivot with us to Facebook Live. Thanks also to our partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop. And without further ado, David Troyer is a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and one of the foremost chroniclers of the rich and diverse Native American experience past and present. His writing straddles the barrier between fiction and nonfiction. Troyer's four novels to date, including the award-winning debut Little, and the book club favorite Prudence mount a challenge to the whole idea of Indian identity as depicted by both Native and white writers. His first major foray into nonfiction, Res Life, an Indian's journey through reservation life, garnered national attention and won the Minnesota Book Award in 2013. Troyer's follow-up, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, earned the author his third Minnesota Book Award and put him into heated contention for the National Book Award. A masterfully crafted melange of journalism, memoir, and historical research, Troyer's latest showcases the Native struggle to preserve their tribes and cultures using resourcefulness and reinvention in the face of overwhelming oppression. During this conversation with David Troyer, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions into the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will write them to me. David, Buju, it's good to see you. I, I hear in Minnesota that you're suffering from some bad weather. Um, <laughs> you know, some wintry, a wintry mix, is it? I wouldn't say it's bad weather, but it's, um, 
interestingly timed weather. And um, thankfully with the audio, um, my husband just wrapped up uh, snow blowing, so that won't be a background noise. Wow. Well, you know, I, I have to confess. I mean, I, I'm a, a little jealous. Um, I miss Minnesota terribly and I love our temperamental weather. Um, I find that in California where I'm living and teaching, I have nothing to talk about because the weather is largely unchanged from day to day. Um, anyway, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really, really happy. Um, to connect with you all, even though it's on Zoom and Facebook Live, um, you know, I'll take what I can get. It's uh, it's the next best thing to being home. So I think what we decided is that we're I'm going to talk for some few minutes um, about the heartbeat of wounded knee and about sort of what led me to the project, uh, what the project has meant for me, and then Melissa and I are going to have a, a back and forth, and we're going to open it up more generally to uh, to more questions. So that's that's the basic template for the evening. So thanks for having me. And maybe I'll start by talking about um, how I got into writing nonfiction at all, because I, it, my birthday is tomorrow, by the way. And with this birthday, I realized that I'll have been a published author and been a, a writer for 26 years. And for most of that time, I was very content uh, being a fiction writer and not writing nonfiction at all. I was, was very happy plowing the fields of fiction. And I had no ambition to be a nonfiction writer because I thought, you know, falsely that that fiction was where the action was. Like fiction was where where things happened. Um, I remember reading Louise Erdrich and Toni Morrison and Cormac McCarthy and Michael Andachi. And they were making sort of making fictional worlds that had a lot to say about our shared real one. And I was happy working in the same vein. But in 2005, that changed. It changed when there was a school shooting at Red Lake Reservation just up the road from Leech Lake. And I remember when the shooting happened, I remember being in New York at the apartment of a friend. And I remember turning on the TV, desperate for information in every channel and subsequently, every print media source in the days that followed were more or less running the same headline about the shooting at Red Lake on a poor remote reservation tragedy strikes. And they might as well have added, and, and they kind of did silently, again, on a poor remote reservation tragedy strikes again. You know, as though reservations themselves were just a tragedy that had been unfolding for, you know, 150 plus years. And I remember being really upset because I wanted information. I wanted to know what was happening at Red Lake, this place that I care about deeply, where we have family and where, where most of my family had worked at one point or another. My father, mother, and I all worked for the Red Lake School District and in that school where, where the shooting happened. And I was really frustrated because none of the news was really reporting the news. They weren't telling us what happened to whom and, and how many people were affected and why, and why it happened. It was really all the coverage was just telling the same old sad story about reservations that, that everyone thought was true. You know, because when Columbine had, had occurred six years earlier, they didn't say, they didn't mention geography or race or class. 
when reporting what happened at Columbine High School, you know, they didn't say in a largely Anglo, ex-urban, fairly affluent suburb, they didn't add all of that. They just reported the news as best they could. But they felt compelled to bring up race. They felt compelled to bring up class. They felt, you know, they, were, they weren't giving in, they weren't providing information. What they were doing was telling the same old sad story. And I, I emerged from that very frustrated and I wanted to write a book. Um, and I was talking to an editor about this. I said, look, you know, there's more to reservation life than just misery. You know, I don't love Leech Lake because it's horrible. You know, I don't tune in, you know, to Leech Lake. I don't miss my community because it's poor, because it's crime infested, because of substance abuse. Like there are really good reasons why I care deeply about this place. There's a power there. You know, there's a relevance there. And nowhere was that communicated in either fiction or nonfiction, to be honest. And so this editor said, well, I've always wanted to publish a book about reservations and what they mean and why they exist and where they're going and, and um, what native writers write nonfiction. And then so I told another lie because, you know, being a novelist is a matter of being a professional liar. So I just said, sadly, only I, I alone among native writers write nonfiction, which was completely false twice over because there are lots of talented nonfiction, native nonfiction writers and I had never written any nonfiction at all. So he says, well, maybe you should do this book. And I said, well, you know, if I must, I must. And, and, um, and so I embarked sort of in, into this field of nonfiction. And I was really clear that I didn't want to tell the same old sad story. I was, I was really clear that with myself that what I needed for myself and what I wanted for my community and what I wanted for readers more generally was a counter narrative. I wanted a narrative that captured the energy and complications and trouble, you know, that informs reservation life. And so I didn't know how to do that. I knew what I didn't want to do, but I didn't know how to do that other thing. I just didn't. And so it took years of trial and error, years. Um, that's why it was seven years between 2005 when the shooting happened and 2012 when Res Life was published. It took years for me to find the counter narrative to reservation life. The dominant narrative used to tell Indian stories and it's used by native people and it's used by non-native people is the dominant narrative is the tragic narrative. And tragedy going back to Aristotle, you know, is, is uh, a drama posed in such a way as to elicit, these are Aristotle's words, to elicit the twin feelings of pity and fear leading to a, a catharsis, an unburdening of those intense emotions. That's, that's what the tragic form does. That's what Hamlet does and that's what Romeo and Juliet does. And that's what stories about natives do. All of them, almost, exclusively. Or the story is a story of hope, which to me is really just the other side of the tragic coin. Neither one is going to change the status quo. Neither one is going to change how we think about ourselves and how others think about us. And I really want to change. For me, writing is about destroying the status quo, you know, either by singing to somebody in fiction or by slapping them perhaps with nonfiction. <laughs> but I want to shake things up 
so it took some time, but eventually, and it took some self-work for me to see the place I was from differently. But eventually, I was able to see reservations not as places where there's less of everything, but actually, on the contrary, as places where there's more of everything. So not it's a narrative of surplus, not of deficit. Surplus of suffering, I think is fair to say, but also a surplus of humor and creativity and togetherness. A surplus of poverty, without a doubt, but also a surplus of hustle and hard work that people engage in almost magically in, in the absence of steady income to put food on their table and to clothe their kids and to shelter them and to raise, raise families. Maybe a surplus of crime, but also a surplus of laws and legislation and law enforcement, and even a surplus of constitutions because we have the US constitution and our tribal constitutions in play in our communities. And so with that idea of surplus, I was able to finally sort of create the book that became Res Life. And, and when I was done, I kind of thought I was done with nonfiction. I'm like, ah, I can go back to fiction now. You know, I can do this again. But um, I ended up feeling like there was more to do, to be honest. I felt like there was a bigger story to tell because one of the other sort of really strong myths or stories about native people is, is that our lives for all intents and purposes ended roughly around the time of the massacre at Undini in 1890. In 1890, you know, the United States was spanned by the Transcontinental Railroad and Telegraph. The frontier was officially closed. The West was considered tamed and settled. Manifest destiny had been completed. They reached the far shore of their ambitions of all those many years, you know, the West Coast. America was sort of, the American question was considered by many to be settled in 1890 and native lives were considered to be over. And if people could intellectually admit, but not really accept that we still existed in some form or fashion. It was only as ghosts or perpetual sufferers, you know, and our communities and our homelands were not really of this country. We were in it, but not of it. All of those notions were still strong and felt like they needed undoing even after publishing Res Life. And so it, it seemed like a bigger book was needed and, you know, as I travel around and about the country, I, you know, people always ask me like, because I, you know, I'm like a broken record. I'm like, Native people are doing things. We're doing things. We're, you know, we're not dead. We're not gone. We're doing things. We're doing this cool stuff. And that, you know, life is going on. It's not just life as a sort of condition of suffering, but we're living our lives. And they're like, well, what can I read that would talk about that? And I'm like, I didn't have anything to hand them. And so as Toni Morrison had once wrote, you know, if, if there's a book you really want to read and it doesn't exist, it's really up to you to make it. And I felt like the book didn't exist. And so I had to make it. And so I embarked. And I also, as I embarked on this project, I, I remembered very strongly being a 20 year old kid in college in New Jersey at Princeton, missing home, missing Leech Lake, missing, missing the only place in the world where I'm actually part of the majority. It's the only place in the entire world. 
missing everything about it, missing the weather, missing the smell of it, missing the Mississippi, which is this puny little thing as it flows past the house I grew up in, missing my cousins and my uncles and aunts and my siblings, missing everything about it. And ex exactly at that time, I read Dee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. This was 1990, exactly 100 years after the massacre at Wounded Knee. And I, um, in that, you know, in that sort of time of homesickness and tribe sickness, which is a real thing, um, I read Dee Brown's book and I had very complicated feelings when reading his book because on the very first page, Dee Brown says something like this, my book, you know, and by the way, Dee Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded is the best-selling book of Native American history ever published. It sold 10 million copies thus far. It's been translated into 17 languages. It's never been out of print in the 50 years since its publication. On the very first page of that book, he says, you know, my book is about, you know, the Plains Wars in the American West, you know, a time of unparalleled greed and cries for freedom made by those who already had it at the expense of those who didn't. I start in the 1850s at the start of the Plain, Plains Wars and I end in 1890 at the massacre at Mundini Creek. And now I'm gonna, quote, more directly, where, quote, the culture and civilization of the American Indian was destroyed, end quote. And on the second page of his book, he, he goes on to say, so if you happen to travel to a contemporary Indian reservation and notice the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, perhaps by reading my book, you will understand why. And I remember being very conflicted at that, reading that. On one hand, Dee Brown was a sensitive and compassionate um, ally who devoted years of his life to, to writing about, learning about, researching and writing about our history and bringing it to the attention of millions of Americans. And for that, I was really grateful, you know, so I felt like with one hand, Dee Brown was lifting me up, but I felt like with the other hand, he was pushing me in a rather premature grave with the announcement of my of our collective untimely deaths hold on my dog is screaming in the kitchen one second guys um he's fine we're not eating him for dinner like it's not that's not happening um and um so i felt like lifted up with one hand and shoved in a grave with the other and, and that feeling stayed with me, you know? And so for the heartbeat of Wounded Knee, what I felt like I wanted to do was I wanted to start where Dee Brown stopped. I wanted to start in 1890 when we were supposed to have all died. And I wanted to tell the story of native lives from then, from that moment to the present moment with the opposite thesis in tow. That Wounded Knee in 1890 was not the end of Native people. It wasn't the end of, of tribes. It was certainly a low point. And in fact, I think it was probably the lowest point for Native people collectively in, in the long history of, of our interaction with non-Natives, you know, since 1491. In 1890, our population was, was below 200,000. 
our political structures had been gutted by federal policy. Our land was disappearing from under our feet at an incredible rate because of the General Allotment Act of 1887. Our children were being taken away from us and so our families and communities were being destroyed because of the federal policy of Indian compulsory Indian boarding schools, which also started around the same time. 1890 was a low point, but it's a point from which we have been ever emerging. And that was the story I wanted to tell. And as I was writing the book, I remembered another book that I'd read when I was an undergraduate around the same time that I read Dee Brown's book. And it was a, it was a Karl Marx book about the French Revolution. Utterly boring and not memorable, but he did say something cool in the opening pages of that book. He, he, he noted that, and it's, this is a rough quote, but he said something to the effect of, all men make history. They don't always make it with tools of their choosing, but they make history nonetheless. And that seemed to me to be the perfect way to think about our native lives. We weren't simply victims of history and history isn't just a laundry list of abuse that either killed us or that we're, we continue to endure. History was something that we ourselves contributed to. We were agents in the historical process and we had agency. We were, and we have always been making history, not always with tools of our choosing, certainly not from positions of privilege or advantage, but we've been, we've been making history nonetheless. So to tell that, to tell that history, you know, it was really clear I had to do two, three things. I had to go back and consult the historical record and look at where we've been and what we've done. And I had to go out and travel the country and interview people. Since this book is about native life and not native death, I had to talk to people, living, working, breathing, dreaming native people. And I had to take a little bit of an inward journey about and inspect sort of what I was bringing to all of this and why I was doing it. And so the book is kind of a result of those three journeys back, out, and in, and ended up being some sort of braided document, history, reportage, and very little memoir. Um, meant to tell this other story. And, and I want to conclude this part of it by saying that I also had another idea I wanted to kill with, with the publication of this book. And that idea is that um, Native people or that Native history is a sideshow to American history. Because, you know, frankly, people tune in to Native stories in the manner that people volunteer at after school programs, maybe, you know, as a liberal social act. Like, damn, you know, my ancestors did so many bad things. I haven't done any bad things. And, and disease actually did most of the bad things. This is what people tell themselves, right? You know, but, uh, but so many bad things have happened to Native people. The least I can do is like, I, I can read this book by Tommy Orange, or I can read this book by David Troyer, or, you know, I can read this book by Erica Wirth or, or whomever and feel like they've, they've done something good. But ultimately, Native history is seen as a sideshow to American history. But what I really, one of the other things I try to posit in heartbeat is that the opposite is actually true. You, 
you can't really understand American history at all, unless you understand Native history. You can't understand, America as an idea, as a practice, does not come into focus unless you know Native history and, and you think about it deeply. America's first revolutionary act was to dump tea in Boston Harbor, but it wasn't merely to do that. The colonists dressed as Native people, as Mohawk Indians to dump tea in Boston Harbor because one of the reasons they wanted to separate from the British was over, they were fighting with the British over who got to exploit Indian resources and land west of the 13 colonies, the crown or the colonists. That's why they did that. After that successful revolution, when they're looking around for a, a model of government never seen heretofore on planet Earth, to whom do they look for this thing which had never been done before? They look back again to the Iroquois Confederacy, and it's on the Iroquois Confederacy that the founding fathers modeled the separation of powers between the executive and the legislative and the, and the judicial. America has been wrapped up in us, has been informed by us, and has been shaped by us since the very beginning and continues to be shaped by us. You know, America has been at war with itself for a long time. This, this is coming clear in our run up to the election. There's a war going on and it's over the question of what kind of country do we want to be? Do we want to be a country like in the words of Ronald Reagan where a person can still get rich? Or do we want to be a country that lifts up and empowers and protects all Americans? And you can see that war being fought on behalf of all Americans by native people today. The conflict, for example, and I'll close with this, but the, the conflict over the Dakota Access Pipeline was not, as some people have framed it, another instance of cowboys versus Indians. The conflict that we saw and continue to see at Standing Rock is over corporate profits versus the common good. And it's native people who put themselves on the line. It's native people who got themselves tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets in order to bring that issue up on behalf of all Americans. So you can't understand this country at all without thinking about us. So with that, I'll conclude this part. And Melissa, we're going to have a conversation. Fantastic. And actually, <laughs> no, that is um, a fantastic jumping off point for um, a question that's come in that was actually on the list of questions that I had wanted to ask you, um, both about Heartbeat and um, about Res Life. Um, how has the Native community received your books? Well, I'm probably the least qualified person to answer that, you know? And Melissa, I know you know this, but I'll just, I'll just say it for the, for the sake of the audience. Um, there are over 500 federally recognized tribes, you know, extant in the United States. So there is no Native community. There are Native communities, you know? And one of the things that I really try to explore in Res Life and I try to sort of, you know, try to present, you know, to readers of the book is that within those communities, there is so much diversity, you know? There are native people living on reservations, you know, who are living their best lives. There are native people who, who live in cities and have lived in cities for generations, 
there are native people in suburbs and small towns. There are native farmers and bankers and lawyers and pharmacists. And there is so much diversity, you know? You have full-blooded Christian native people, you know, and you have fractional native people who, you know, are fully culturally native and practice their native religions. Like there's so much diversity, there's no way to say. You know, but from what I can tell from, from my little corner of the world, like people have been okay about it, you know? Um, I haven't gotten a lot of hate mail, so that's good, you know? <laughs> I was thinking more specifically about Res Life because yeah. it's so focused um, on Leech, like how it was received in your home community. Well, again, like, I mean, I had people say like, you know, that's awesome. Like I wrote about my cousin, Jesse, in that book and you know Jesse's been through a lot and he's made a lot of mistakes and you know big ones and so when I was writing Res Life I was writing about him and he was at the time in prison and you know I we were talking on the phone I'm like dude I want to write about you for this book and I'm, I want to be clear like I'm going to be writing some stuff which is maybe unflattering and how do you feel about that? And he's like, dude, you know, I've made some terrible mistakes. I did all this stuff, man, it's just real bad. He's like, but you know, if someone can learn from the things I did and maybe not do them, go for it, dude. You know, and so that was Jesse. But then again, another cousin accosted me at the Bina gas station. She's like, you said some shit about my dad. I'm like, well, who's your dad? And she told me, I'm like, I didn't say anything bad about your dad. And she's like, yeah, well, I guess not. But, you know, so like... <laughs> You know, at Leech Lake, as my uncle Davey said shortly before he died, he's like, I love, I love our res, man. He's like, because you can be whatever kind of person you want to be here. We got all the kinds of people, you know, he's not, he wasn't wrong. So I'm sure there's people at Leech Lake who don't like it, who think I overstepped, who think that I don't know what I'm talking about, you know? Okay. And there's people who slapped me on the back and gave me an attaboy. Okay, too. All right. Well, and thanks to Gina for um, that question. Um, we've got another question coming in from Jocelyn. Uh, would you care to reflect on the issue of cultural appropriation? And can one person of one culture write about another culture in an honorable way? Well, um, there's I should say like, <laughs> there's no playbook, okay? There is no set of rules or guidelines that are gonna protect anybody writing about other people. You know, there may be some do's and don'ts, but there's, there's no way to steer clear of trouble. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. You know, I think it's incumbent upon us. I think it's, I think it's demanded, it's required of us to try and imagine the lives of others. I'm speaking more about fiction. So if we only wrote from and about that which we experienced, Shakespeare wouldn't have written Lady Macbeth, you know, or Juliet, or Desdemona. Toni Morrison wouldn't have written about James Gardner, one of the plantation owners in Beloved, or Paul D, one of the central characters. 
or Setha's husband, it's incumbent upon us, it's required, it's important that we try to imagine the lives and the interiors of other people. If we don't do that, you know, we'll all end up basically, there's a famous Borges short story where this is map maker, you know, who's creating a map of such detail that ends up being the same exact size as the country he's trying to map. Because he's like, well, no, I need to add this, I need to add that. If we only wrote about ourselves, our books would just be textual, blown up textual representations of just ourselves. It's pointless. So we have to think about other people. There are honorable ways for other people. There's no way to do it right every time. There's no set of rules. If you check all those boxes, you're going to do a great job. Um, but I guess I can say that one thing it's important to remember is that there is a world of difference between writing, you know, writing of and writing for, you know, or speaking, I should say, there's one thing, it's, there's a world of difference between speaking of and speaking for. It's important for us to speak of other people, to think of them. Speaking for, that's not cool. You know, I'm not speaking for native people. I try not to in my own work, even though I am native. But I am trying to speak of, and I'm trying to illustrate our lives. You know, need I? I'm an insider to a certain degree, but I'm not an insider at Blackfeet Nation or Seminole or Cabazon or I'm an outsider there too. You know, so it's tricky. There's no playbook. That's the first thing you need to know. <laughs> but we have to do it. All right. And then we have a question in from John sent over email. Um, and John says, it's incredible to me that two geniuses like David and Anton Treyer could come from the same family. Is there anything about your upbringing or shared tribal experience um, that you ascribe that to? And do you have a professional working relationship um, to help each other with research, beta reading, so forth. And that actually, I have a question related to it of my own. I'm curious if you two have a friendly rivalry or tally over literary awards. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there. And the first thing I want to unpack is the, the, the first part of the question. Would we say two geniuses? Would, would... Anton, are you there? Are you, are you on this call? Are you watching me, bro? Would we say two? I don't know. I don't know, man. Um, all half joking aside, um, thank you for saying that. Um, I don't know if I agree that <laughs> either one of us rise to that level. Um, and I don't know. I mean, my our upbringing. Um, I don't know. My father wrote, you know, he, he had, he had a lot of ambition to be a writer. None of it didn't really play out. He didn't achieve, I think what he had hoped to achieve as a writer, but, but writing was in the air. I woke up every morning to the sound of his typewriter. I swear to you. And he started typing at six. It was very rude. You know, <laughs> that the sound of his IBM Selectric two pounding away in the next room is just is deep deep in my, in my being. Um, 
my best friend's dad too growing up was was Gary Paulson who lived near Bemidji and his his son was my best friend all through my childhood so I knew writers we knew writers it wasn't a stupid or impossible thing to do um my parents believed in education you know they believed in in the power of language both of them and you know this is a little off the question but I will come back to it people often ask me if you know what it's like to grow up in two worlds you know or to walk in two worlds you know I have a parent who's not native and Jewish and I have a parent who's native and whatever and you know from a reservation I work and function and teach you know out here in California and I really always fundamentally and strongly reject the idea that there is such a thing as two worlds and maybe that's the thing about my childhood which which is was so unremarkable to me is that I grew up feeling like I lived in one very very big one Leech Lake was the center of it no doubt you know but I, I found no contradiction in going outside and snaring rabbits and then coming inside and trying to like warm up my hands so I could practice classical music because when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a composer. That's what I wanted to do. There was no contradiction, no gap, no sort of one world, other world. It was just one big world that I got to live in and that, that I was sort of taught to, to, to be a part of, to, to be engaged with, you know? I don't know if that helped or not. As for collaborating with my bro, we are so different in so many ways. We tried it once. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of what he does um, and impressed by it. And it's not at all what I do. And um, I think I can speak for him in saying that he's proud and impressed by me and my accomplishments. But Melissa, he's published like 20 books, you know? I've published seven. But I will say, as we leave this question behind, that my seven books have won far many more awards than his. <laughs> just saying. Just oh, saying. delightful. You know, <laughs> yes, we can. And I think, you know, really, we spur each other on. We, we've always been in competition, most of the time playful. Um, rarely do we draw blood. And I think that our, our sort of rivalry, which has been in place since I was born, um, has made us ambitious. And we have um, a question in from Wendy. How has the shift from fiction to nonfiction impacted you as a writer and as a person? Gosh. Um, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I, I've always thought of it as a shift away from fiction. Like, I've got a divided heart now, you know, half of it belongs to fiction and, and half belongs to nonfiction. Um, but I suppose if I looked closer, more closely at my heart, I'd realized that there is a kind of energy that transforms back and forth. So for example, like to sort of get away from the tragic narratives that I was talking about before, to me, the opposite of tragedy is complexity. So tragedy turns native people into a, uh, a statistic and it turns our lives into a condition. You know, the tragic narrative robs us of our agency and of our human qualities, really. 
So to, to the antidote to that is really an antidote I, is, is a sort of medicine I drew from fiction. In fiction, your big ideas aren't gonna animate your book. Your characters and their lives animate your book. And the way you, you create fully realized characters is by paying attention to the details that make them human their passions and their failings and their obsessions and their associations and their words and their deeds, all of this stuff makes your character sort of fully rounded, you know? Same is true for the nonfiction. To counteract a tragic telling, I had to go out in the world and talk to people, record them and pay attention to what makes them human their failings, their fantasies about themselves, their, their delusions, their, their habits, their gestures, the way their voices sounded, you know? So, so as it turns out, my nonfiction was shaped in so many ways by my fiction. And I suppose there's a, a you know, a sort of a cross, you know, pollination as well. I'm not quite sure what that is because I haven't written a novel in a while. <laughs> I don't know, 2016, my last novel, but I'll answer that in like another couple of years because I'm working on a novel, so, yeah. All right. And um, this question from Phyllis, what awards, scholarship, fellowship, or other honor has meant the most to you and why? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like my, the career in writing has been long, but fairly a, a slow burn, you know? My first novel was published in 1995. I was 24 years old. Didn't win a whole lot. And not a whole lot of people read it, you know? My second novel got even less attention, you know? It hasn't been just a, a sudden explosion in success and fame. And I was kind of writing in the dark and sort of out in the cold and it felt like with not a lot of love from the literary establishment, I'm not, I'm not angry, it's just the way it, a writing career is largely a matter of luck and timing, you know? And it's felt really good to sort of feel the, the warm embrace of, you know, of prizes and of, you know, great reviews and wonderful venues. Like that, that, that has felt good. And not having had that for a long time, made me appreciate it. I mean, the very first book of mine to be reviewed by the New York Times was my sixth book. My sixth, you know, Prudence. And then it got a mixed review, like, well, well, you know, it happens. Um, it's cool, you know? And, um, but honestly, and Phyllis was the person who asked the question, like, the things that have felt the best, really? You know, you know, were, having Kevin Washburn, the former director of the BIA and a native guy from Oklahoma who I interviewed for, for Heartbeat, respond to the part in which he appeared. He's like, he's like, you write so well about legal issues and considering that you're not a lawyer and that these issues are so complicated. He goes, you write about federal Indian law like with such lucidity. He's like, I'm, I'm just so impressed. That meant so much to me, you know? as did the words from a Blackfeet friend of mine, you know, who read Heartbeat and he reached out and he's like, dude, I was really on edge because whenever anyone writes about us who's not us, they screw it up. And he's like, you didn't screw it up. 
<laughs> that meant a lot to me, you know. Um, oh, high, high praise yeah. indeed. Yeah, high praise from a Blackfeet dude. <laughs> and uh, trust me, high praise from that guy. Trust me on that. And so um, high praise, I took it as high praise that um, Russell Means complained that um, I never interviewed him for, for Res Life. <laughs> I was happy about that, you know, so those things meant a lot. I mean, joking about means, but the other stuff like that, that meant a lot, you know, the fact that Helen Bryan, who is from Leech Lake and she was instrumental in the eventual Supreme Court decision that paved the way for tribal gaming. And she's this little old lady from People refer to it as S Lake now because we don't yes. like saying what it's really called on the maps. Um, she uh, she was happy. She's like, you know, no one gave me anything. I didn't get anything out of it. my little case about my trailer that made gaming possible. He's, she's like, but I want a little recognition, you know, and I'm really happy to be in your book because people are going to know what I did. You know, that meant a lot to me. So. And um, let's see. Oh, here's a good question from John. What progress, if any, do you see in the way our American history is being taught at all levels from elementary to college? Um, I see progress. I'd like to see more, you know. My 11-year-old um, who's in sixth grade just had an indigenous people's unit and he's just like, not as bad as when I was a kid, but he was rolling his, his eyes. <laughs> He's like, yeah, so these kids in my class, they're like asking questions like, well, how do Native people sharpen their spears? And I'm like, how do you sharpen your spears? I think, don't you have a pocket knife? I have a pocket knife. Same thing, you know? He's just like, why are these still questions? You know, so it's getting better, you know? And I'm pretty pumped because there's going to be a YA sort of middle grade version of, of Heartbeat. Um, so I've got to get to editing that. Um, it's on my plate. But and in Indigenous Peoples History of the United States by um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is already out in YA version. And there's a lot more stuff happening, you know, so much cool stuff happening. And um, Never, I mean, we are experiencing a blossoming, just speaking about writing, of Native people writing in all venues, history, memoir, fiction, poetry, young adult fiction, speculative fiction, science fiction, thrillers. Um, it's a great time to be Indigenous, I have to say, you know. Greta in Detroit Lakes has a question kind of in that vein. Um, who are your, some of your favorite authors? And she's looking particularly for Black, Indigenous, writers of color. My gosh. Um, Gerald Walker, African-American essayist. He's coming out with a book called How to Make a Slave that blew my mind. Um, so did a book called Afro-Pessimism. I can't remember the guy's name right now. Um, incredible book. Um, the Undocumented Americans is a new book coming out, nonfiction book about 
that issue, which is phenomenal and written by a woman who herself was a dreamer while she was in college. Um, in the native sphere, um, there's a great uh, thriller written by a native author called Winter Counts. I love that book. Um, there's some creepy horror books by Stephen Graham Jones, another native writer, which are incredible. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, it's an embarrassing amount of good stuff out there. Fantastic. So um, kind of, well, with experiencing the pandemic, how has life changed for you as a writer, as a teacher, um, a professor? What does life look like for you now? Oh, probably looks like it looks like for everybody else, you know, we have to meet on Zoom and I miss my students. I miss sharing the space and sharing air with them, you know? I, I really, I always knew that I'm sort of, my students and their questions and their energy and those relationships have always fed me. I mean, quite literally as a teacher, um, but I didn't really realize how much their presence and the, the kind of community we build in the classroom sustained me until I no longer had that because of COVID. So that I'm doing the best I can as are my students. Um, um, it's affected directly, you know, some stuff I'm working on I'm working on an article for Atlantic Monthly, the, the, the thesis of which is that um, the national parks, while a relatively good idea, were often formed at the expense of native people and the parks were formed by stealing native land. And there's an obvious solution to all of this, which is that all of the United States national parks should be returned to native people and we should run them. That's what we should do. I think that's a great idea. And in fact, we should go a little bit further. Do you guys remember your history that when George Washington and the other revolutionaries were, were fighting the British and they were outgunned and, and undermanned and what they really needed, what they really wanted were native allies. They wanted the numbers we could bring to the fight. And so they met with all these tribes in the Ohio River Valley and other tribes out East around the Appalachians. And these revolutionaries promised that if we sided with them against the British after the Revolutionary War, um, they would become, those tribes would be constituted as the 14th state in the Union. That didn't happen yet. So why don't we turn the national parks over to native people and those national parks will in their entirety comprise the 51st state with the governor and a legislature and a judiciary and a voting body and all native people collectively will form the 51st state. And just like you get to, you know, we get to visit all our friends in Wisconsin, you can visit us in our national parks. Anyway, so I, I'm writing this article and I can't go to the places I wanna to go to, to to talk to people to research this so I can make the best argument possible. But that's what I'm working on right now. So. All right. We'll get and through And then um, we've got one last question to wrap up here. And so um, I'm curious, so that's what you're working on now, but um, what is hopefully coming next um, for you um, as a writer and then also, when you are able to get back to Leech Lake, what are you hoping to do 
next or first when you arrive home? Well, I am working on a book, a big, big idea book. It won't be as long as Heartbeat. It's sort of a long essay about American violence. We'll see. Uh, There's not much to say about it beyond that at this point. It's early days, but the easier question to answer is like, what would I do when I'm next back at Leech Lake? I just want to tell all the people in Minnesota that for better or worse, you know, get ready for it. Um, I'm going to be back. You know, I think as soon as my youngest graduates from high school, I'm, I'm heading back to Minnesota permanently. I miss it. I'll, you know, next time I'm back, I'll do what, the, what I do every time I go back. I just take a deep breath and I just head into the woods around Leech Lake. I mean, depending on the time of year, you know, usually I'd come back for hunting season and I'd be in the woods. I'd be hunting with my brothers and my nephews and nieces. And I won't make it for this one because of COVID. And my nephew, Isaac, hooked me up with about 80 pounds of venison that I put in my trunk when I drove back here this September. <laughs> so I'm set for a while. Um, but if it's spring, I'd go out looking for mushrooms. If it's summer, I'm going to go fishing. You know, if it's winter, I'm going to go trapping. Like I just, I've got to be out there. I miss it. There's a lot to love and embrace about Leech Lake Nation. There truly is. There is. I miss it. You know, I miss like driving around, you know, grouse hunting in the fall and you'll see another car coming and you'll slow down. They'll slow down. And like, it's rare that you don't recognize who that is. <laughs> <You're> like, hey, <laughs> Bobby, hey man, you know, like, yeah, I miss that, I miss that. Well, David Troyer, Chimigwich, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight and for um, taking time out of your busy fall for this. Well, I, um, my pleasure and I, I miss it. I, I'm jealous of all of you who are there now, so thank you. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with David Trower. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Mega Majumadar. Mega Majumadar is the author behind A Burning, one of the most anticipated and best reviewed fiction releases of 2020. Set in modern day India, this explosive debut offers a powerful corrective to the political narratives that have dominated in contemporary India. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, Remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.